St. Paul's Church, thank you so much for joining us tonight as we remember the greatest act of love in history, Jesus' death on the cross. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah. These were written hundreds of years before Jesus' earthly life, and yet they remarkably and precisely describe uh, what happened to him during his crucifixion. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we are gathered virtually to remember your sacrifice. Lord, I pray that you would uh, do something special in our hearts tonight, that you would remind us of the, um, the glory of the cross in, in all of its, of its horror and its beauty, Lord, um, that you loved us that much to go through the cross, Lord. Lord, I pray that uh, we would understand on a deeper level uh, tonight as we, as we reflect uh, what the cross represents and what it reveals to us about who you are. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one of my favorite verses in Scripture comes from the book of Hebrews, and it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, if we want to know what God is like, we cannot do any better than looking at Jesus. And there is probably no event in Jesus' life that is more revelatory about the character of God than Jesus' crucifixion, than the cross. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, When I was among you, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So notice that emphasis on the crucifixion right there. It is impossible for us to overstate the significance of the cross. This is the pinnacle of God's revelation to us. And so what we remember tonight on Good Friday is extraordinarily important. Now, there's several ways that we could reflect on the cross and what it reveals about God. There's all kinds of different angles that we could look at it. But what I want to use to guide our reflection tonight on the cross and what it reveals about God is the seven things that Jesus said when he was on the cross. The Gospels all together record Jesus as saying seven different things. And it's possible that he said more things when he was on the cross, but these are the seven that we are aware of. And so these seven things can give us special insight into who God is. Um, and uh, I like to say... You know, you can learn a lot about a person when they're under extreme stress. 
and Jesus was under no more stress in his entire life, uh, no greater stress than when he was on the cross. And so we learn a lot about Jesus and, by extension, about who God is by what Jesus says on the cross. Uh, so we're going to reflect on all seven of these things. I promise you we're not going to be here all night. We're going to move through them pretty quickly. Uh, we're just going to spend a couple, a couple minutes on each. The first saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Uh, we find this quotation in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33. And this is what it says. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. This scene should fill us with awe. Here we have the exact representation of the character of God, and he is being tortured. He's hanging naked on a cross. He's, being, he's been whipped and scourged. Uh, people are sneering at him, mocking him, making fun of him. And as he hangs there naked, people are taking his clothes and they're dividing them up uh, among each other. Now think of how incredibly humiliating and insulting that would be uh, in your dying moments to be treated as less important than pieces of fabric. You know, even if I wasn't dying in a horrendous way, if I was on my deathbed and people were coming in and out of the room and they were just rifling through my stuff, I can't imagine how deeply dehumanizing that would be. And yet that is what is happening to Jesus here, what is happening to the incarnation of God. And Jesus' response to this scene is just unimaginable. It's to pray for the people around him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In other words, God, don't hold this against them. They have no idea how terrible all this is. Now, what does that tell us about God? Well, this tells us that God is far more forgiving than we are. Far more forgiving than you are. we are. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was in, in that situation, I mean, if I was on my best behavior, I think I would just be praying that, you know, God would take me soon and that the pain would be over quickly. But to actually be thinking of the people who are torturing me, around me, I just, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So instead of hating these people, Jesus sees them as sheep who have gone astray. You know, people who are lost and confused. Talk about giving people the benefit of the doubt. If this is the exact representation of who God is, this is incredibly good news. Because it means that God is far more interested in our redemption than our condemnation. Far more interested in that. You know, so many of us have a picture of God where we think of him as eager to punish us, eager to, to throw us into, into hell. But Good Friday reveals that we have that picture completely wrong. Right? He is not eager to destroy. He is eager to forgive. The second saying, 
I am thirsty. We find this one in John chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 28. Later, knowing all that was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. I am thirsty. Now this one might not seem that interesting or that revealing, right? So Jesus needed a drink of water. Wouldn't we all? What's the big deal? Well, these words are very significant. They're only recorded in John's Gospel. And what's, what's important about that is that earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And what he meant by that is, if you are spiritually parched, uh, if you are searching for joy, peace, forgiveness, freedom, if you're looking for that, come to me, and I will satisfy those existential longings. I will quench that thirst in your soul. And yet, in this moment, this is incredibly profound, the one who offers to quench our thirst is saying, I am thirsty. I am parched. And what this reveals is that through Jesus, God has borne the pain of the human condition. He has experienced it. You know, there's a philosophical problem that people have struggled with um, called the problem of evil. They've always struggled with it. They always will. And the essence of the problem is, how can there be a good and loving, all-powerful God um, when there's so much evil and suffering and pain in the world? And during times like this, when a virus upends our lives, a lot of people start asking that question. You know, they start ruminating on the problem of evil. Now, I want to admit, the problem of evil is a tough problem. It's not a problem that has a real quick and simple solution to it. But before we use the problem of evil to accuse God of not existing or of being cruel, we need to think about Jesus on the cross saying, I am thirsty. Jesus, the exact representation of God's being, suffering and saying, I am thirsty. Now what that tells us is that God is not a passive observer who's distant and removed uh, from the suffering of the world. Jesus reveals that God is with us in our suffering. He does not ask us to bear what he is unwilling to bear himself. And that might not make it so that we can understand why there's so much suffering in the world, but it does give us reason to trust God, that he has good reasons, because he's taking it upon himself, too, and to a degree that none of us will ever experience. The third saying is, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. We can find this one in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. <clears throat> one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We 
are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. So similar to the first saying that we looked at, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This one is an incredible revelation of the grace of God. Now, we don't know exactly what these men who were being crucified next to Jesus were guilty of. Uh, but what we do know is that one of them said, we are being punished justly. And I doubt anyone would think of crucifixion as a just punishment if all they had done is say, you know, steal a loaf of bread. Uh, these were not men who were guilty of petty crimes. If they think that crucifixion is a worthy punishment, they must have done something really awful. In fact, the Greek word that's used for criminal here has a connotation of violence. So these were probably people who had inflicted violence on other human beings. And yet, despite the severity of this man's crimes, Jesus promises him paradise. He turns to him in his own suffering, and he promises him paradise. <clears throat> so what we see here is this man, he acknowledges his sin, he acknowledges Jesus' sinlessness, and he acknowledges that Jesus is the king. And that's all it takes. And then Jesus welcomes him into paradise. So again, this is an incredible revelation that God is far more interested in redeeming us than in condemning us. Our God is forgiving. Our God is a God who welcomes sinners and screw-ups into his kingdom. All it takes is a humble heart willing to recognize him as king. You know, if you feel like you've made too many mistakes in your life for God to accept you, uh, if you feel like you have put off his call for too long, uh, if you feel like you have accrued too much bad karma for to ever be part of a heavenly kingdom, Good Friday reveals, no, that's not true. It's not too late. All it takes is that humble heart willing to come to Jesus and willing to recognize him as king. All right, fourth saying. Dear woman, here is your son, and here is your mother. Dear woman, here is your son, and here is your mother. So this comes from John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Seems like a lot of women were named Mary in those days. <clears throat> when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, what I find striking about this moment is how relatable and human Jesus seems. You know, what we see here is that Jesus cares about his mom, right? Uh, Jesus knows that Mary is going to be heartbroken when he's gone. And he wants to make sure uh, that she has a man who is like a son in her life. 
And uh, so he says to one of his disciples, the disciple John, he says, I want you to view my mother as your mother. And he says to Mary, I want you to view this man as your son. And that was especially uh, important thing for Jesus to do in that time because women in those days uh, really relied on, on men for income and that sort of thing. It was a very patriarchal society. And so if a woman was a widow and she didn't have any sons, uh, she could really be in trouble uh, and, and wouldn't have her needs provided for. So Jesus is, is showing that he really cares about Mary in this moment. And I just think that there's something so relatable uh, about that concern for family. I remember reading an article uh, not too long ago. It was by a hospice chaplain. And she said that the thing that people want to talk about the most when they're at the end of their lives is their families. And I think we see that tendency, that very human tendency, uh, reflected in Jesus on the cross, too. During this coronavirus pandemic, one very common source of our anxiety isn't just anxiety for ourselves, but it's anxiety for our, our loved ones, our families, right? Especially our older family members, our moms and dads and, and grandparents. And we see in Jesus here a similar concern, right? He wants assurance that his mother is going to be okay and that she's going to be looked after. So if any of us are experiencing anxiety about our family members right now, I think this moment should be comforting for us because it shows us that God's concerns are also our concerns. And God is not indifferent to those feelings of concern that we have for our loved ones. If this is the exact representation of the being of God, then we can be confident of that. And that should encourage us to, to pray and have confidence that God hears our prayers and, and will respond to them. Okay, let's look at the fifth saying. It is finished. It is finished. Uh, Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, right before he dies. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, I am finished, right? He says, it is finished. And that should remind us that what Jesus has done here, all this suffering he has endured, is about accomplishing something. He has, he has come to accomplish a task, and right now, as he is about to die, he has accomplished that task. The Greek word that's translated here as finished was actually a word that was put on business receipts to indicate that the transaction was complete. And it has a connotation of paid in full. Paid in full. So what Jesus is saying here is that the suffering that he has just endured has in some sense been a sufficient payment. A sufficient payment. Now, you might ask, what is it a payment for? Well, what it is a payment for is the liberation of the world from the curse of sin and death. Liberation of the world from the curse of sin and death. Jesus said in Mark 10, uh, verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wants us to think of our condition 
as human beings, our spiritual condition as one of captivity. Like we're held in bondage. We are in captivity to the forces of sin and evil and death. And what happens when Jesus dies on the cross is in some way it's like he pays for our ransom out of captivity from those, those forces of sin, evil, and death. And, you know, I realize it can be kind of confusing to understand how that all works. How that works is called the atonement. And there are whole books that have been written on the atonement. How does the atonement work exactly? And I, what I like to remind people of is that you don't have to totally understand it to put your hope and trust in it. You know, I am not mechanically inclined, so I don't really understand how my car works. I mean, I have some very bare-bones ideas of how it works, but like when it comes to the nitty-gritty, I have no clue. Okay, But I can still get in the car and get from one place to another. I can still have confidence that it's going to get me from point A to point B. And it's similar with putting our hope in Jesus. You know, we don't have to understand exactly how God becoming a man and then dying on a cross sets us free from sin, evil, and death. We don't have to understand all the details. We just have to trust that that is the truth, that that is what it does, and put our hope and trust uh, in that. So, it is finished means God has done what is, what is necessary to free us from our spiritual captivity. Let's move to the sixth saying. We've got two left. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the last words of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And they are profound. I think that what Jesus asks here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a question that many of us ask at some point in our lives. It's basically, God, where are you? Where are you, God? Maybe you've asked that question recently as you've struggled with this pandemic. Where are you, God? And the fact that Jesus, the incarnate God, asked this question himself tells us that when we ask, where are you, God? The answer is, he's right here with us. That God would so enter into our situation to also say, where are you, God? Tells us how far he's willing to come to be with us, to be near us. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He knows what it's like to feel the weight of the curse of sin and death. God is with us. He's with us even in the darkest of situations. From, you know, the World Trade Center towers on 9-11 to the gas chambers of Auschwitz, God is with us. Wherever somebody says, God, where are you? God is there because God himself has gone so far to actually also say that himself. Now, not to get ahead of ourselves, uh, but as we're going to celebrate in just a few days, God is not only with us in the darkness, but he also overcomes the darkness. And there's a hint of that even in this profound moment of Jesus expressing this abandonment. Because when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That quote actually comes from a psalm. It comes from Psalm 22. 
and in that psalm, it describes a situation a lot like the one that Jesus is going through right now. In fact, I believe it is a prophecy about what Jesus would eventually go through. Uh, and it says, A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's incredible, isn't it? That's exactly uh, what we're, we're seeing here in the Gospels hundreds of years after this was written. So Jesus wasn't just experiencing the feeling of abandonment when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was also quoting Psalm 22. And when we know that, we realize that not only was Jesus expressing a feeling of abandonment, but he was also expressing hope. Because Psalm 22 doesn't end with abandonment. Psalm 22 ends with hope. It ends with these words, For God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is both a reminder that God is with us in the darkness and that the darkness will not win. And that brings us to the seventh and final saying of Jesus on the cross, which is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And what I want us to notice about this last saying is that Jesus willingly gives up his spirit. Even in this very last moment, it's not like death is just something that happens to Jesus. Death is something that Jesus consents to. And that's actually consistent with what we see happening throughout the whole passion narrative. Jesus uh, isn't forced to go to the cross. Jesus willingly goes to the cross. For example, when the authorities first come to arrest Jesus because of Judas's betrayal, uh, when they show up, Peter jumps in to defend Jesus, and he pulls out a sword, and he actually cuts off the ear of one of the guards that's, that's come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword, and he heals the, the guard's ear, he says, this is not the way that my kingdom is going to be built. And he says, Peter, don't you realize that in a moment I could call on a legion of angels to come and save us? And he says, but if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? In other words, if I did that, if I just looked out for saving my own skin, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? How would we ever be able to say, it is finished? How would I ever be able to say, you are ransomed and set free from your captivity to sin, evil, and death? Jesus would not be able to say that if he just saved himself. He needed to go to the cross to save us. So, what I want us to see here is that the God that we worship, the God who, who suffers and dies. Uh, he suffers and dies not because he is less powerful than anything or anyone, but because he is more powerful than anything or anyone. He chooses to endure the suffering and the death willingly, not because he must, but because he loves us. And that really is the supreme revelation 
of the cross, that God loves us more than we can ever comprehend. I'm going to close by playing a, a hymn that reflects that. It's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Uh, and um, I encourage you, as I play this song, uh, to reflect and maybe uh, spend some time in prayer.
Jesus, we thank you again for the cross. Lord, help us to stand in awe tonight of who you are and what you've done to rescue us. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again uh, for being with us tonight, and we hope that you will join us in just a few days, uh, Sunday morning at 10.30 here uh, to celebrate the resurrection. Go in peace.